Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? It's undeniable that the religious landscape of America is changing dramatically. In the 1950s, about 70% of Americans, on average, self-identified as Protestant. But today, we're getting closer to about 30%. Meanwhile, the fastest-growing religious movement in the United States isn't really a traditional religious movement at all. It's what some people are calling the nuns. That's not N-U-N-S, that's N-O-N-E-S. People who, when they take these surveys about their religious identity, check the I'm nothing box. So one of the challenges for any Christian living in America is how do we remap our understanding of religious identity in this country? There aren't a ton of atheists, but there also aren't now a ton of Christians, or at least there's about as many Protestants as there are nuns, as there are various other categories of religious identity in our country. When I think about understanding the nuns, or what some people have called spiritual but not religious people, there is no book that I turn to more than Tara Isabella Burden's book, Strange Rites. I read this book, honestly, probably about once every year. In fact, when we started Truth Over Tribe, I joked with our team, there was a short list of people who, if we could get them, we would wake up at 2 a.m. to talk to them. And Tara Isabella Burden is one of those people, because I think she's really understood how religious identity is working in the present, especially how our changing understanding of self and selfhood is reshaping how we think about spirituality. She talks about people being spiritually remixed, basically putting together a bespoke, modge-podged version of spiritual identity that pulls from multiple sources that's designed to allow the individual to choose a particular kind of spirituality that fits their sense of self and self-expression perfectly. I hesitate to say much more because this interview is fascinating. We go all over the place. We start with our definition and understanding of what the self even is. We move into the topic of self-care, and then we end by talking about spiritual remixing. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Tara, it's so great having you on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Your book, Strange Rights, in my opinion, is mandatory reading for anybody seeking to understand our cultural moment. In it, you look at how Americans are increasingly remixing our spirituality. By the way, did you invent the phrase remix spirituality? I hope that I did. I think that I did. (laughs) I am indebted to the idea of unbundling, which I credit, and I'm going to mess up his name, so I'm going to take a second before crediting him, Casper Turkoyla and Angie Thurston at Harvard Divinity School came up with unbundling as how they talked about it. And I wanted to sort of take that idea and build on it a little more and talk about not just the mix and match approach for spirituality, but also the kind of ways in which things are reimagined and re-envisioned and kind of made new. And so remixing came out of that, but apologies if anyone else has used it that I've missed. Well, that's the key to creativity, just forgetting where you found it. <laughs> no, it also says, I love the phrase because, you know, in your book, you explore how we Americans are now creating kind of bespoke religious identities that are downsized to fit the self. And we'll come back to spiritual remixing because I want to unpack it. But first, I want to start by sharing an ad that I saw at the turn of 2023. What was interesting is it was encouraging people to take part in a New Year's resolution that I found a bit surprising or it was so on the nose. It was shocking. So it came from Skim, which is a large media org. They report on news, celebrities, money, wellness. It's kind of a grab bag of topics. And it's called the, and this is a quote, it's called the put yourself first challenge. And the caption reads, new year, prioritize you. You get a lot done, like 
a lot, but sometimes your own wants and needs end up at the bottom of your to-do list. This January, we are challenging you to focus your goals and rediscover yourself. Each week, we'll send you expert tips on how to put wellness, style, desire, and aspirations first. Sign up for reminders to stay on task. And the images that are associated with this are pretty striking. One is a woman. She's clearly dressed up to go to the club. She's got a blowout. She's wearing diamonds. She's looking good. There's another one, the wellness one. It's a woman all in pink and a field of flowers. The put your desires first one is a woman who's licking her fingers after what's clearly a delicious meal. The put your aspirations first one shows a woman who's doing her nails. So I guess the is, you know, do my nails every day or something. And then I have to admit the put your style first, the woman in that photo has great style. So, you know, mission accomplished (laughs) there. But can you help me understand why this would be a New Year's resolution? Because I almost couldn't imagine this happening 10 or even 15 years ago. What I find really striking is that the assumption in an ad like this and in a lot of self-care oriented ads is that this is something we don't do already. And I think the very particular target for this advertisement is someone who, let's say, has a really high-powered job or wants to even think of themselves as someone who has a high-powered job, as well as uh, family obligations, perhaps children. But the kind of idea is that, in general, we are not as in control of our lives as we would like to be. And so the solution to the problems of, quote-unquote, capitalism, quote-unquote, the kind of daily grind, what have you, is to take time away and kind of opt out of that by turning inwards and focusing inwards. So it's the sort of double motion of focus on the self as opposed to like focus on your boss. And this is how it's often coded. But I think, in fact, we do exist in a culture that does remind us to focus on ourselves quite a lot. So this is not perhaps as revolutionary or as sort of excitingly anti-capitalist as it perhaps purports to be. That's really interesting. Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head for me, which is I don't think I have to be told to put myself first. I feel like I kind of do that naturally. And it's actually something that I try to resist, generally speaking, in my life. But the other half that I find really interesting are the four categories that they pick, the things that they're going to help you put first, which are wellness, desire, style, and aspirations. And I say that, but there's a lot of things you could pick. If you're going to tell someone, hey, put yourself first, what are the things that you need to do to do that? You could maybe talk about exercise or character development. I mean, there's lots of things you could talk about, but why do you think those are the four things? Wellness, desire, style, and aspirations. Well, I think putting wellness aside for a second, I think what's interesting about aspiration and style in particular and desires that they're all about self-expression. This idea that you are either presenting yourself to the world or kind of understanding yourself in such a way that the way that you present yourself on the outside ought to reflect some kind of immutable inner truth about who you, quote unquote again, really are. And I think wellness is sort of such a vague term that it can mean so many things that, of course, there's the wellness that really means losing weight or wellness that really means, you know, having perfect skin or wellness that just means like a certain kind of meditative do not work today, which is certainly understandable and at times desirable. But I think that more broadly, the kind of fantasy of self-care is a kind of cultivation of self-expression as something a person ought to do where the self that is being expressed is a kind of at once fixed, but very much defined by desire and feeling like what you want makes you who you are. Mm. So I wanted to ask about that because I think you said, quote unquote, immutable self. So like we have this idea, I think you see in personality testing, you see it in a lot of different places that at my core, there's kind of this crystallized thing that exists. And my job in life is to express that crystallized thing that is me. Do you think we have a immutable self at the core? I think we have a soul, but obviously (laughs) without trying to resort to theological language, I think that who we are as people. And this is, again, a little bit of a spoiler because this is what I deal with in my upcoming book, Self-Made, which is about the kind of history of self-creation from, well, the Renaissance to the Kardashians. But I think that we are in a cultural moment, or perhaps you could say the culmination of a cultural journey that tends to see the self as simultaneously this kind of immutable, fixed, but like oddly secularized thing. It's not a soul. We don't necessarily have a shared cultural discourse about 
the soul beyond kind of using it as a vague stand-in for something we can't quite understand. But I think that something that we do share as a culture, though of course not universally, is this notion that the thing that is the crystallized thing at the heart of us is comprised of desire. We call it the will, you can call it what we want, you can call it what we feel too, but the sense that our hunger to be something is kind of constitutive of who we really are. So the process of expressing ourselves externally is a process of becoming who we want to be, which then is also becoming who we really are. And so presentation and actualization and artificiality and authenticity do end up converging. Oh, that's really interesting. So, I mean, would you resist that idea that my desires are constitutive of who I am or the idea that there is kind of a immutable core of who I am, that that's kind of a personality? I would. I would resist it, let's say, 90% resistance, which is to say, <laughs> I think that one of the things that we as human beings have always been conscious of and wrestling with and will probably never come to a satisfactory conclusion about is the fact that what it means to be us is is simultaneously fixed or given or you know embodied we can use a host of words here to signify what we did not choose and there is something about who we are as humans that involves certain kinds of freedom creative freedom we are storytelling beings we are beings who have the capacity to imagine outside of our physical limitations and our social context. And so I think that over the past, let's say, few hundred years, we've seen a shift away from self-understandings as being particularly social, to a lesser extent, physical or biological beings. Uh, who we really are is less and less where we were born, to whom we were born, the circumstances of our social lives. And of course, some of that, and what I want to hold on to and not say, you know, we should all go back to the Middle Ages where we knew our place, <laughs> the social hierarchy and kings were kings and peasants were peasants. You know, there is obviously great liberatory potential in the idea that something that is true about us is not limited to the circumstances into which we are born. It can at its best be a narrative of liberation from certain kinds of oppression. And I don't want to lose sight of that. Mm, that's really interesting. That being said, <laughs> at the same time, I think perhaps the pendulum culturally has swung far, maybe even far too far the other way. I think that we are so used to, especially, let's say, the past few decades, and especially, especially in the wake of the popularization of the internet, which has literally taken desire and sort of made it into a literal landscape, the kind of world in which we visually and discursively move for many of us who work in part or in whole online or on our phones, we see our desire as the kind of engine of what we experience. And I think more broadly, we are in a cultural moment where we are, with some exceptions, but generally speaking, reticent to see ourselves as anything but what we choose. Things that fix us, societal expectation, for example, or other elements of facticity are often seen as things to be overcome, or they are instruments of repression, or society is making us do something. A lot of the language of authenticity, and you can find this, of course, in you know, 19th century transcendentalist thought onwards, or you can find this in the Enlightenment. You know, this is not exclusively a new idea, but it is an idea that I think has sort of reached its apex now, is this idea that the things that society tells you are true are inauthentic and bad automatically because they are external. They are not intrinsic in a certain way. And the process of enlightenment, cutting the leading strings, as Kant would have it, is also the process of kind of cutting yourself off from the things that are pulling you in given in particular directions. And I think that there's certainly something to be said about discernment or questioning what we believe and why and what we inherit and why we inherit it. But at the same time, I think we are so much less willing as a culture than perhaps ever before, as these sort of self-care narratives make clear, to say, you know, who I am is not just these desires and these sort of impulses towards self-expression, but also I am a daughter. I am a wife. I'm speaking as a woman here, I'm say as a husband or as a son, but these kind of ways in which who we really are, are so 
rooted in our relationships to other people. And that is not something that self-care language makes plain. And of course, I think it's perfectly fair to say that, you know, if you are a mother who is also working a really demanding job, sure. I think that is someone who probably does not have a lot of time to stop and say, who am I outside of these roles? But I think more broadly, the language of self-care, while it does have, of course, applicable benefits or can be a useful reminder in some cases, has become this kind of be all and end all where we're all sort of being treated by advertisers as if we are people who constantly put others first. And that's not really true of most people because, I mean, it should be maybe, but I think, well, certainly I'm just a really selfish person. But as you said, I don't need reminding to be a little bit selfish sometimes. And if anything, I need reminding to do quite the opposite. You know, it's really interesting hearing you talk because it's almost difficult to even have this discussion. The idea, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, that at some point in the past, when someone asked the question, who am I? They looked outside themselves. They looked at their social context. They looked at their relationships. They looked at their place, their locality, the soil in which they lived, grew their food and, you know, raised their animals. They looked outward. And now we have a tendency to look inward to find out who am I? And it's almost intuitive that all of those outward things are a threat to that inward person. It's so intuitive that it's hard to have a conversation like this because we want to acknowledge, yes, there's some cost to looking outward. <laughs> and we all know those costs, but I'm not sure we're aware of the cost of looking exclusively inwards to find who I am. And in fact, I think when we look at a society that's you know wrecked by depression and anxiety and a lot of mental illness, I often wonder to what degree that's a function of this constant inwardness that we all live out of. And so I appreciate you bringing it up. And again, I think it's really hard to talk about. I mean, do you, as you've done kind of your next book, do you feel like there are some clear consequences to looking inward to find out who you are to the exclusion of looking outward? Oh, absolutely. There are consequences. I think that particularly there are social consequences. I think we become less tolerant of ways in which our desires are, or in some cases ought to be kind of curtailed by, when I say desires curtailed by social expectation, that already possibly even for me conjures up an image of like repression and tyranny. Yes. But you know, I'm talking about to give it a really silly example that's often kind of cited in self-care narratives. I'm talking about like sucking it up and going to like a family dinner and being vaguely annoyed by some of your relatives that you're not super close to, but you know what, your family and you just make it work. The sort of stereotypical kind of self-care example. And something like that, if you code it as, well, I am not practicing self-care because I'm putting myself in a stressful situation because I feel like society and the people around me are telling me I ought to. That is one way of framing an interaction. But I think that what we lose when we start to kind of unquestioningly code all interactions like that is the sense that we exist in community with other people, people who are often, as we ourselves are, difficult or frustrating. And that the kind of path to work through that, that's not to say you should go and, you know, let your third cousin scream at you for three hours or something. <laughs> but I think this notion that we form who we are, who we really are through interactions with others. We are not in that sense fixed. And so to have interactions where we make ourselves vulnerable to one another, where we kind of work to make certain kinds of community possible, whether it's around the Thanksgiving dinner table or on the level of politics, or perhaps the Thanksgiving table is also a kind of politics too. We do kind of make ourselves through these interactions. We make others through these interactions as well. And I think that to kind of already start from the position of like, I am fixed and these other people are fixed. And so it's a zero sum game, every interaction it becomes a kind of power struggle, who wins, who loses, who gets what they want, who doesn't. The more comfortable we are with the lack of fixity, with a sense that we are working on various projects together. And sometimes the sense of obligation of like, we've all got to show up and we've all got to get along is itself a kind of externality that makes the kind of interpersonal back and forth or the interpersonal difficulties sustainable because there's a kind of common goal. And obviously my example is not lofty or exalted, but it is the kind <laughs> of way in which we function pretty much every day as human beings. And I'm always so struck by cultural conversations that tend more and more towards the idea that these interactions are 
dangerous or harmful or to be guarded against. And I don't want to discount that there are times when these interactions are not advisable. But I think the broader assumption, at least if you spend as much time on, you know, certain quarters of Twitter as I do, is that we need to guard ourselves against one another. We are all enemies and we have to put up boundaries against all potential sources of psychic threat. That's a really great way of framing it. And I love the description you gave of kind of all of these isolated, buffered individuals who need to protect the inner self from the threats of being shaped by outside things. First of all, I mean, that's a really cynical way to live. And obviously, I think it prevents relationship because relationship is always a giving of self and receiving of other. It's a sacrifice of self often, right? Because you have to put someone else's interest first and hopefully they <laughs> return the favor. You're making me think, though, I think an interesting thought experiment is if you put an individual on an island, right? They're a shipwrecked they're on an island alone there's no one else with them are they still really fully a self i'm thinking about this movie with tom hanks where he gets shipwrecked on this island and one of the things he does is he finds a volleyball i guess from the shipwreck and he uses his bloody hand to put a handprint on it and draw a face in it and he calls it wilson and the rest of the movie is really about him living in relationship with a volleyball in other words part of his personhood is so fundamental that rather than having no personal interaction he'll take an inanimate object anthropomorphize and turn it into a person because that's part of what it means to be human. He can't be a self without another self, even if it's imaginary, they're present. I mean, what do you think? I mean, do you put someone on an island by themselves? Are they still a self or something weird happened? Well, let's put it this way. I would not want to say that anyone is not a self, but I think that there's a reason that isolation is often a form of torture or punishment, that Mm. when we are deprived of the ability to interact with others, we do lose something that keeps ourselves not quite whole, because I don't think we're as static as to be whole, but certainly to be functional. That I mean, this is something that I'm so conscious of in the post-question mark pandemic era. I know so many people and perhaps I'm one that even the isolation, the physical isolation, when we had certain kinds of social encounters with one another mediated through a screen, did really mess with people in a way that I think we're still grappling with. I think something like the pandemic lockdowns, and I was in New York for the pandemic, so somewhere which had a comparatively stricter lockdown culture. I think that so many of us became so conscious of the importance of other people, what we were losing, even for those of us who, like me, were very happy and willing to follow the rules for as long as we needed to do. There was a real profound sense of loss that when people would say, oh gosh, you know, those selfish people who just want to go to restaurants and party, like that is so crazy that these crazy people would want to just have their foie gras burgers or, you know, martinis or whatever the hipster shibboleth was that was used to discount this. I thought it was so strange that the sort of politicization of certain elements of the lockdown or pandemic measures more broadly meant that there there kind of wasn't as much discourse or as robust to discourse as I would have wanted about like, gathering is good. People in community are good. Now, these are goods that perhaps may need to be curtailed or altered for other goods like people not dying. But this is a sort of discernment of how we order things that are good to kind of create a policy that is wise rather than this kind of odd narrative that the desire to gather was somehow like selfish and weird. Like It is profoundly unselfish to want to be around other people. That is just a normal and indeed healthy constitutive thing, as you say, of being human, of being a self. And I think we're still kind of wrestling with the aftershocks of that, of what does it mean to gather in community as this kind of unanswered question that the pandemic sort of threw into relief and then in receding kind of left us with. I know a lot of people who experience mental illness, you know, depression, anxiety, a lot of harm came out of isolation. And I'm with you. I mean, we followed the rules here. So my point isn't to say that, you know, we can't evaluate that. But I find it interesting. It seems like we didn't quite learn the lesson, right? (laughs) Because one lesson you could take away from isolation hurt us all is I'm really made for relationship. And it turns out that the truer, better, fuller version of me is the me that's in relationship with friends and family and the people that I work with. Like that's part of who I am. In fact, one of my favorite 
favorite TV shows right now is called Mythic Quest. It's on Apple TV. It's about a video game studio. It's a fabulous show. I think it might be the best show on TV right now. There. Oh man, I'll check it out. Oh, you should for sure check it out. Don't let the video game thing freak you out. It's not really about that. But they handled COVID better than any other television show. I remember there's a different Apple show with Jennifer Aniston and she gets COVID and it's this kind of almost like hilariously like overwrought, like she's like writhing in bed and falling. And you know, it's just, that was the way they handled it. Like it's just this threat of death. And on Mythic Quest, they handled it differently. I mean, they took seriously that, yeah, you know, people could die from this and we need to wrestle with that. But the entire episode is on Zoom. And so you've got all these characters. And at the end of it, one of the characters won't show up on screen. And she finally explains to someone else that she's just not doing well that she's alone and she doesn't know what to do with herself and she's hurting. And one of the other characters shows up at her door and you kind of see through the computer screen and knocks on the door and opens up the door and they give each other a big hug. And he says, you know, I love you and I miss you. I'm like, start crying. when I, Every time I watch this episode, I'm waterworks. <laughs> and it's just this beautiful moment of like, yes, we isolated for a reason, but there was a real cost. And the thing that we lost was meaningful and substantive, which was the hug. <laughs> it was the relationship with people. And I find it ironic now that it seems like, you know, in 2023, we think now the answer is, well, let's just do more self-care. Let's just isolate and focus on ourselves more. It's like, no, actually, I think what we lost was others. Absolutely. I found like late 2021 to be in someone's sense more psychologically difficult yes. than the pandemic itself, the sort of adjustment of things are back to normal. But what does that mean? I know a lot of people who kind of made it through the most extreme sort of months of isolation only to kind of find themselves so off kilter as they tried to re-navigate a world where it wasn't a sense of, oh, I'm nervous being somewhere unmasked or I'm nervous being like in a crowded room so much as why is it not all just like hugging my friends? And this vision of the return to normalcy was kind of this vision of like all of the good things coming back. And then maybe a disappointment that things weren't quite the sort of utopian world where we all just hug our friends all the time. And that's just, <laughs> you know, the lesson that we've learned. I want to circle back into the self-care thing. I led us astray into talking about the self in general because I'm very interested in this topic. <laughs> I want to show you a different ad or read to you a different ad because you can't see it and our listeners can't <laughs> see it either. And this one's a bit more controversial than the last one. It came from Planned Parenthood. And I'm not asking you to weigh in on whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. That's really not the point. But Planned Parenthood recently tweeted, self-care comes in many forms. How do you practice self-care? And beneath it, they had a gif of a woman wrapping herself in a hug. So she's hugging herself and wrapped around her are the words, abortion is self-care. So I found this to be a really interesting tweet and I wrote about it and I got a lot of pushback, honestly, for writing about it. But I just want to start here. I mean, I kind of see you as a self-care expert. I don't know if you see yourself that way, but what would lead Planned Parenthood in your mind to see abortion as a form of self-care? So I think that a sort of broader cultural let's say, narrative, one that is often kind of reflected in the abortion debate, as indeed in many other cultural debates, is this idea, the language of my body, my choice, is also a language about autonomy and what autonomy as held up as a good. And I think it's particularly weighty and significant in the narrative about abortion, in part because of the historic way in which women have not had autonomy. And so there's a sort of link between autonomy and liberation that is a completely understandable and like intellectually defensible. But I think that more broadly, the language of choice, the language of it is extremely important for us to determine the shape of our own lives for ourselves. And this is like not just a good among many, but perhaps the paramount good. And this is, I think, something that is a broader cultural narrative than we can find in Planned Parenthood or indeed in any one cultural debate. It is a kind of broader cultural moment where personal freedom and autonomy ought to be seen as the greatest good around which other goods are oriented. What is also sort of fascinating about this is that this is a narrative that is something that you find across political lines and across political worldviews. You can talk about the anti-vaxxers using often very sort of consciously, many of them tend to be right of center and would very consciously use the my body, my choice line to quote unquote own the libs and say, well, you know, if you think that, we think that. So I don't want to say this is just, you know, a mentality among, you know, 
progressive types or liberal types. I think more broadly, it is a cultural narrative that we all inhabit in one way or another. And it's a cultural soup we swim in that freedom is good and choice is good and not just good, but that this is the good around which, you know, as we talked about with the pandemic discernment and ordering, what is the one that we put first? And I think that that language is so about choice and freedom is very much bound with this other cultural narrative that we're talking about in terms of self-care, that part of that freedom involves self-expression or authenticity or to our real lives, our real selves are the one that we choose and everything else that we do not choose is thrust upon us. And again, I only want to come at this as like, here are these cultural narratives, but you can see how political choice and autonomy in the political sphere and this idea that our choices are constitutive of our true selfhood mean that the broader self-care narrative and the more specifically political aims of Planned Parenthood fit together very, very naturally. That said, I imagine, as is true with all advertisements, I think a lot about Equinox, that in the attention economy, the more controversial your advertisement, the more attention that you get. And so just as, you know, Equinox just had this advertisement, it's now January 5th. On January 1st, they did not accept new members because we don't want any of you, you know, losers who are only doing this for your news resolution. We want real athletes. And of course, they got all the publicity. So I think <laughs> it's also true that you kind of can't separate your analysis of these ads and why they work and the narratives behind them from the fact that like saying abortion is self-care is going to get a lot of people mad on Twitter and that's going to raise your profile in certain ways. And that's just how the attention economy works, which is itself another component of this society that moves on ideas of desire and choice is that in the attention economy, what we want to see literally like moves dollars around. When I saw it, this is what I tweeted. I said, the layers of wrongness here actually excavate the underlying problems of using self-care as a framework for human flourishing. And some of the pushback that I got was basically, look, self-care is great, but Planned Parenthood doesn't get what self-care is, obviously, because like this is ridiculous. And their tweet doesn't really reveal anything about self-care. It just shows how wrong their definition of self-care is. And so I'm just curious. I mean, what do you think? I mean, does a tweet like that fit well inside of a self-care framework? Or is it merely just what you said a second ago, which is it's just an incendiary ad meant to get people you know, shills like me <laughs> to quote tweet them and critique them and elevate their visibility. This kind of ad and this kind of discourse is exactly a point where you can see this narrative has embedded itself in our culture in a certain way. We can see the kind of liberatory narrative around it as a discourse. We can also see um, ways in which the self-care narrative has kind of splintered into something else and even more individualistic. I think that an advertisement like that can tell us a lot about our cultural moment and the way in which we broadly as a culture are wrestling with a sense that many of us, more and more of us share, that freedom and self-expression are the highest goods rather than goods among many and kind of show us both the political valence of that assumption and ordering of goods, as well as the kind of broader, less explicitly political, more individualistic, like cultural balance of it. I think you can say, you know, you want to understand 2023. This tweet is in the time capsule. And I say that without wanting to explicitly pass judgment of anything other than an interesting sign of the times. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other responses that I got when I tweeted that was Christians were saying, look, self-care is good. Self-care is Christian. And in fact, you know, Jesus taught us self-care, you know, so I had someone who sent me a bunch of Bible passages. One was about how, you know, Jesus and the disciples had a long day. And so he told them to eat self-care, how Jesus went off and found times of solitude, even though, you know, he's really busy with ministry, self-care, how Jesus went off and prayed and called other people to pray, self-care. How do you respond to that? I mean, do you think Jesus was teaching self-care or is this an example of kind of the spiritual remix thing happening? Well, self-care is obviously a really loaded term. So I just want to make sure we establish as we're talking now for our listeners who may not be familiar with this, that the self-care kind of arose out of activist discourse. And the idea of it was like, while you're fighting for the revolution, like make sure to drink water. I'm being simplistic here. But the idea was that in order to fulfill important purposes outside yourself, political, ideological, communal, part of that was making sure to kind of not destroy yourself, to recognize that the things that are important on a kind of personal level 
community, friends, family among them, that like a reminder of what was important needed to be held on to as you fight the fight. I'm sort of being simplistic here, but I think that that is obviously not what take a bubble bath by itself means. And I think that the word now has the connotation that sort of isn't a bit irritating, but like there's nothing wrong with self-care. There is nothing wrong with eating good food and sitting with your friends and taking a bubble bath sometimes. These are good things. These are pleasant things. But to go back to a point, I feel like I sort of find myself harping on today. It is about ordering of goods. It's what is this for? Why are we doing this? How do we discern the ordering of goods in our life? And I think there's something different in saying, in order to do the thing that I think of as my fundamental purpose, which is to live out my life in a community in a particular way, to participate in politics explicitly or implicitly in my community in a certain way to make the world better in various ways. Part of that is to ensure that I've had sleep and that I'm, you know, not hungry and miserable and that I have certain kind of relationships with my friends that are good for me and for them. And I think that thinking of self-care as a kind of affirmation of the importance of ordinary life of small pleasures, of certain kinds of community, what it means to sit and read a book on a cold winter's night in front of a fire. These are goods. These are reminders of what we fight for when we fight for things. They are reminders of what is valuable. They're opportunities for us to be at home in our own heads and think more clearly through, you know, not being constantly frenetic. Like all of these things are good. And I think to sort of mock self-care as a concept Nobody, nobody thinks that like most of us should be eating gruel and drinking, you know, <laughs> soylent and working 24 hours a day. I mean, maybe Elon Musk thinks that. I don't know. <laughs> but I think the point at which we lose sight of the kind of teleological picture, like what is this for? What are we doing this for? What is our ultimate goal? That is the point where I think self-care becomes a ritual of... I feel like Charles Taylor is just like lurking in the background of this conversation, <laughs> expressive individualism, that we are enacting this kind of quasi-religious, like, now is the time for self-care and now is the time that I express myself. It's like, you don't need to give it that weight. Just like eat some nice soup and read a good book and then go like <laughs> yeah. take that into the world. And one of the sort of difficulties of culture war discourse more broadly. And maybe I say this as like, I'm an Episcopalian. I'm a boring centrist when it comes to certain things. But I think that culture wars discourse about this sometimes elides the fact that what we are talking about is often not good versus evil or liberalism is terrible and freedom is awful and like order is amazing or vice versa. So much as like we are ordering goods and we are figuring out how to order goods and like freedom is generally good. And so is community. And there's a kind of wisdom in figuring out how we order them as a society, how we put these things into practice. What are the things that we must preserve? What are the things we concede on? And that all sounds very like kumbaya, warm and fuzzy. But I think we have to hold on to the best in each concept in order to kind of have a discourse that doesn't turn into something that's like quite cartoonish and intellectually disingenuous. because offline like even the people who are yelling on twitter be like freedom is terrible like no one really thinks that or maybe <laughs> i don't think any sane person 100 thinks that like if they thought about it for more than five seconds that all forms of freedom are just like automatically terrible what you're saying is actually really really clarifying for me while i realize it can sound philosophical to talk about how do we order goods what i think i just heard and you can tell me if i've got this right is look if you have a high good like I want to take care of my family or I want to fight for justice in my society or I want to serve in this institution that helps others. There's always a tendency or there can be a tendency to allow that to consume the entirety of your life. And so if self-care is a good that serves you being able to do those things well because you haven't forgotten yourself, right? <laughs> you do need to eat. You do need to exercise. These are normal good things that you should be doing. If it's serving a higher end like loving others and caring for others and doing good and practicing justice – 
then, hey, maybe it has a real healthy, normal place in our lives. But self-care has expressed often is really for the ultimate good of self-expression. That's a much more questionable good than caring for our communities. For me, that's actually a really helpful way of framing it. And part of it, too, is like what you said, if self-care is just enjoying the normal things of life, that's one thing. But going back to the skim ad, these were women who were dressed in luxurious, multi-thousand dollar outfits. Like, this is not just go out and enjoy a good meal. This is, you know, give yourself luxury, give yourself the best, pamper yourself, treat yourself so that you can express yourself. And so that for me is really helpful is to ask the question, what's the end goal of the self-care? And that can tell you a lot about what kind of self-care you end up doing. I agree entirely. I think that's exactly right. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I want to shift our conversation. In your book, you talk a lot about remixed spirituality, which we already discussed a little bit. There's a long history of debate about what religion is, what qualifies as religion. But in your book, you talk about how religion gives us meaning. It gives us purpose. It gives us community. It gives us ritual. And you talk about how, again, people are kind of remixing things from different religions or remixing things from outside religion to create their own meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. And one of the examples that you use is atavism. And I kind of want to go here because the self-care thing tends to be a little more focused on women. And I think sometimes men get a pass when it comes to the self-expressive individualism bit. It's like, oh, this is a female problem. That's how it ends up getting talked about. But your chapter on atavism was really helpful. So actually, I just need to pause. Can you define atavism for us? Sure. The way that I use it in my book, and I talk about it to talk about a largely masculinist framework of internet-based ideology from like Jordan Peterson on what at the time of my writing might have been considered like center-right to right-wing bodybuilder discourse is this obsession, this like nigh-on religious obsession with an imagined primal past. This sort of neo-Nietzschean, I might say, valorization of primality and nature as a kind of brutal hierarchical force in which we all battle for domination. I think of like Jordan Peterson's sort of famous, like we are all lobsters. We are creatures in the dominance hierarchy. And what a lot of these movements have in common, and they are often designed to appeal to men who think of themselves as like anti-woke or anti-SJW. And the discourse goes something like, oh, this namby-pamby feminine modern civilization wants to tell you that everybody's equal and that like differences are only social. And actually, we, the people who know the real facts, know that these other people are too afraid to acknowledge is that there is hierarchy and hierarchy has to do with dominance. And like some people are just better or stronger or smarter or well-suited to certain tasks than others. As you might imagine, it has exactly the gender and racial implications that you think it does a lot of the time. And that is not to say that like, quote unquote, race realism and other like white supremacist buzzwords is true of all atavist spaces. I do not want to say that. But I think that the general 
ethos of the kind of atomism I talk about is this real obsession with this kind of vision of nature that what is natural as opposed to the choice world is fixed. And you might hear in what I'm saying now, well, this has nothing to do with what we just talked about. Like this is the opposite (laughs) of what we talked about. These are people who are talking about nature and fixity and not having choices and that we are defined by, at the worst, the blood and the soil of our origins. But I don't think that's true. First of all, these groups largely live in the same like brainworm poisoned internet discourse as the rest of us. Like they're all on Twitter with us. We're all locked in together. (laughs) With their anonymous accounts and weird paintings as their images. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What I think is sort of fascinating from the outside is that On the one hand, I think perhaps at my most charitable, what I would say is something like there is a real hunger among a lot of people. And actually, I think you can talk about social justice discourse in a very different way to recover a sense that the circumstances into which we are born do say something real about us. Our experiences are shaped by things that we do not choose. That is something that is an impulse that you can sort of see more broadly. It is not, again, exclusive to atavists. A desire to say like, okay, we've lost something. How do we get it back? How do we reason with the fact that we are not simply what we choose? And then I think where the atavists sort of go off the rails is this kind of weird mix of like self-improvement discourse and obsession with like personal kinds of victory and hierarchy. Like at the end of the day, if what you want is to like get up to the top of the dominance ladder, like be the biggest lobster, be the bodybuilder with the best body and get the girls who are the tens or the Stacys or however you want to call it. It is still an ethos of self-improvement for the purpose of self-actualization, just with the kind of fig leaf veneer of like, we are doing this in the real true way and not like the fake woke choice way. We are doing this by tapping in our innermost nature. But then we get back to this like authenticity, artificiality, convergence. Like we are tapping into the true, primal, deep thing that we as men, usually not exclusively men, are that is real and true. And we are, you know, expressing this and living this out. It is a kind of form of expressive individualism, just one with like more weightlifting. <laughs> and yeah, it's not that like no atavists ever talk about obligation, but often it's kind of like, I have an obligation to my woman and my children and my homestead. And we should indeed have obligations to our spouses and children and home. The sort of like slightly Campbellian hero's journey, self-mythologizing of it does tend to kind of reflect the self-care language of their wellness-worshipping enemies on the quote-unquote left, not really left, the cultural imaginary of what the left is. Because I think ultimately the kind of gospel of self-improvement and the gospel of self-cultivation is the gospel that like both of these internet tribes are living by. You just thread a needle for me that I didn't even No, I needed to be threaded, but that was really helpful because I think you're right. You can see in both groups this notion that society really is a cage, that it inhibits us, that it controls us, and that it needs to be rejected. Now, the kinds of society that need to be rejected, you know, maybe on one side it's the patriarchy, maybe on the other side it's the matriarchy, you know, however people want to frame what they see as being the problem, but they still see where I'm at, where I'm born, the culture in which I live is something to be rejected, something that I need to set aside so that I can be true to myself. But what I find interesting is, I, you know, the point you're making saying the self that the atavist wants to be true to is kind of this mythologized, nostalgic version of masculinity that probably never actually existed, you know, and it doesn't sound psychological, you know, because they're not using Freudian terms. They're using like Darwin terms, <laughs> you know, they're talking about nature. I said, I was a little young in there, I guess, but more than Freud. But. Oh, yeah. Uh, you would know better than me. But that's really helpful because it still is a form of self-expression. They just won't see it as self-expression because they think that they're expressing something primal that's innate and natural, but the framework is still there. It might help to give some people some examples of some of this stuff. You already mentioned Jordan Peterson and I'd love to come back to him, but could you tell us a bit about Bronze Age pervert? Oh God. (laughs) I remember when he was just some guy on the internet that I covered and now I almost don't want to give him more attention, but I, I will say that Bronze Age pervert was an anonymous Twitter account that basically somewhere between trolling like really homoerotic pictures of naked men from like ethnic backgrounds he approved of, wrote a manifesto that was basically just like, I once described it in Strange Rights as like lolcats Nietzsche, like the kind of combination of trolling, wink, nod, 
we should all bodybuild and like get with women, sort of, not really, from like the sorts of countries that are coded as having subservient wives and somehow developed enough of a following that I want to say was it Michael Anton was reviewing and citing his like basically illegible manifesto in the pages of the Claremont Institute's publication. So somehow like this dude on Twitter who was kind of trolling-ish as much as anyone on Twitter is and is not trolling, who somehow became this, I'd say as much a shibboleth as an actual source, which is to say a means by which like-minded people could recognize one another. And the sort of political fantasy, which was really at one time like embedded within what was then called the alt-right and which I'm sure now will have another name. But this idea that like fighting back against the sclerotic bug men of feminized modernity was the primary purpose of political life. Well, it's interesting to see how some of this stuff is, you know, increasingly mainstream. An example from a few days ago, there was a guy, pastor, I believe, who posted something about how masculinity is not a fruit of the spirit. And Meg Basham, who's a fellow at the Claremont Institute, quote tweets him and says something to the effect of, I can see why, referring to his physical appearance <laughs> was her point, right? And so it was kind of a check of, hey, you don't look like much of a man. So I'm not surprised that you don't think that masculinity is a quote unquote fruit of the spirit. And I saw that and I just started thinking about Bronze Age pervert and this notion of atavism, which is, you know, that part of our meaning and purpose in life is to reclaim this kind of ancient physicality, this kind of imagined Greco-Roman physique and attitude towards women and towards culture and towards dominance and that that's, you know, a net good. I mean, how would you describe the meaning and the purpose that someone like Bronze Age Pervert gave to his readers? I mean, his book was a bestseller on Amazon. It wasn't like it was just some off the beaten path read. I mean, people were reading this and consuming it. So I'm not particularly inclined to be charitable to Bronze Age Pervert. So I'd like to frame this question about speaking charitably of the 18-year-old boy who finds some of these tweets and kind of goes down that rabbit hole. And I think that the most charitable way to understand the sorts of people who get into this sort of thing, relatively ordinary people, is that there is a promise. I think that there is something seductive and probably, yes, good about the promise of embodiment in an age in which we are increasingly alienated and disembodied. Some of it is the same snake oil that like any kind of self-help guru peddles, which is like, hey, you know what's great? Like, follow me, you'll get hot and then all the hot girls will want to sleep with you. And I think it's very easy to just be cynical and say like, this is just grifterism 101. But I think another part of the appeal, particularly for young men, is a sense that we are in a fragmented culture where we do not have shared narratives, where particularly narratives around masculinity are, I think, all the more fraught because there is a prevailing sense that, let's say, men have not historically made the best use of the authority that they have historically held. What does it mean to be a man is tricky and confusing. What it is to be a human is also tricky and confusing. And what it is to be a woman is tricky and confusing. But this is one particular iteration of the trickiness and confusingness of what it means to be in the world in this particular way. And I think that the promise of a kind of embodiment that even if you're like tweeting about it, the sort of promise is like, you are touching grass and you are lifting weights and you are connecting with who you are outside of this like terrifying Twitter panopticon is very, very seductive. Obviously, you can't just tell people like log off Twitter forever and like take long walks and as it were, touch grass, which is probably would be better for all of us. But I think the sort of promise that idealism about like there is something real in the world away from the ways in which modernity has prompted us to become alien to one another there is some way of getting that back. There is a sort of distinctly 19th century and onwards mode of a kind of romantic vision of recovery that has often kind of floated into and out of reactionary politics more broadly, which is like, hey, we've lost something. And that something has to do with immediacy and presence and also has to do with certain kinds of enchantment and magic and also has to do with nature and the urban bourgeois lowercase l, liberal city is the thing we're fighting against. I think at its worst, those impulses sort of go to very, very dark places and they turn into kind of very, very racially charged forms of nationalism. But at their best, or let's say 
what you can understand as a real impulse that like gets wrongly put down the wrong rabbit holes is like there is a hunger for enchantment and presence and immediacy and a recognition that our culture in making some gains, some progress has lost those things. And this desire for recovery is, I think, enough of a hunger. And I'd say a widely held hunger. I think, you know, certain forms of like narratives of self-care and wellness with their sort of mysticism and spirituality attached are also versions of this. But I think that we do very broadly have versions of that hunger. We don't have a great vocabulary to talk about it. We don't have a lot of ways of exploring it that don't sometimes sound very reactionary. And so certain grifters, certain Twitter grifters or grifters more broadly, are very good at capitalizing on those impulses and profiting from them. And I think that's probably a wider truth that we can say about politics, about our celebrity culture, which is that there have been, always will be, those who have a very good eye for cultural hunger and the willingness to commodify and exploit it. One of the fascinating things about atavism for me is it's easier to see kind of the colonial legacy in atavism, the notion of conquest, the place into which I'm coming, it is a place to be conquered. The culture that exists is not just a cage, it's something to be, you know, destroyed and replaced. It's easy to see the colonial legacy again in atavism, but I actually think you see something really similar in kind of the more self-care version, which is my reality around me. No one would assume that it was something to be conquered if we didn't live downstream from on some of the conquistadors. And so yet again, it's like you see all these linking up points between these groups, which would, of course, offend everybody in both groups. <laughs> they would hate it. I'm curious, what other example of atavism is Jordan Peterson, much more famous, still quite popular as we're talking today. In Remix Spirituality, you talked about how we're looking to make meaning and we're looking for purpose. What's the meaning making and the purpose that Jordan Peterson is giving to his followers? What I think is interesting about Jordan Peterson and about a lot of these figures more broadly is that they're making a kind of strange alliance with, let's say, the more explicitly religious right. Like the odd marriage between traditionalist Catholics and sort of Jordan Peterson-like figures. I can understand on both sides. I know, like, for example, Jordan Peterson has appeared many times in conversation with Bishop Robert Barron of the Word on Fire podcast. You know, one of the things that he does and does well, I've been on the show myself, is, sorry, TV show, not podcast. The sort of understanding is that there are young disaffected people who sort of we the church can reach on one hand. And I think Jordan Peterson does describe himself as a Christian now, although I think he's been not public about what precisely that means to him. Elsewhere, I think before he had often talked about Christianity in the sort of language of like universal myths and sort of universal truths that are shared across cultures, that there's sort of a union like mysticism to it. But I think speaking more generally, there's a sort of interest on the part of people who are in the kind of officially secular, anti-woke, atavistic discourse world to want to see in traditional organized religion, particularly the more traditionalist and perhaps reactionary segments of that, a kind of alliance that can be made. The sort of narrative is something like, well, maybe you might believe some weird doctrinal stuff, but like the truths of what you espouse and, you know, the kind of hierarchies and orders you stand for, especially over and against the quote unquote social justice warriors is like making you a worthy bedfellow, as it were. And I think that the interest on the more traditionalist side is like, you guys know how to reach the young people and how to tweet. <laughs> and so you'll often find these kind of like very bizarre, if you spend too much time on Twitter, people who kind of get memed into one version of this. I'm thinking of like the sort of idea that kind of being right wing or being a person who wants to recover certain forms of atavism and who is suspicious of the ostensibly woke world kind of leads you into the space where suddenly like traditionalist Catholicism reemerges as a possibility that you can go to on the meme train. I do find that fascinating that there's a kind of obsession with religious traditionalism has kind of been added to the remixing, I'd say, in a way that is interesting, that it exists, perhaps I'm being cynical, as like something you can add to your personal religious soup. You could be a Catholic monarchist bodybuilder in your bio <laughs> on Twitter, and that's just your little bespoke corner, and you've got your like nice set of emoji icons and your usernames. I don't want to be 100% cynical about it. I'll be 90% cynical. But, you know, the 10% that says people are looking for meaning. And it is interesting to me that in an era where we are all wrestling with what it means to be free, perhaps even 
too free because of something that is bolstered by the sense of disembodiment we have because this sort of freedom exists in our internet lives where we are not embodied, that one of the ways in which some people are seeking a corrective to that is in traditional religiosity. And, you know, I, one of them, I mean, as traditional as an Episcopalian can be, of course, but, you know, <laughs> I was someone who came back to the church in my twenties after, you know, a lot of time in soul cycle. So I can understand <laughs> that impulse and I don't want to, you know, fully say that it's bad. Exactly. I want to recognize that spiritual hunger and the places it takes you is a very complicated thing. And I don't want to just reduce it all to like silly memes either. I don't want to either. A while back, this might have been six months ago, Jordan Peterson released this video. It was called A Letter to the Church. And in it, he's kind of calling the church to task for ignoring young men and telling them you need to bring young men in and here's the things you need to do to bring young men in. And on one level, I got why so many people liked it because it hit on the good 10% that you just described, which was these young men are looking for meaning. These young men are looking for purpose you have it, church, go give it to them, <laughs> was kind of the point. And I thought on that level, okay, you know, fair enough, that's good. But then as we're talking, it kind of made me realize what bothered me is once you drill down into what he sees as the meaning and purpose that the church can give them, it does kind of come back to this atavism, right? It does come back to, I mean, he's not telling them to all become bodybuilders, but you can still see the kind of chaos and order narrative, right? You know, you bring them in so they can fight the chaos. I'm like, well, that's dualism. That's not Christianity. So we have to start there. What's fascinating to me was that, you know, there's nothing in his speech about what the church gives men that sounded like the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the kinds of things that actually the church is supposed to form <laughs> inside of young men. And I think that's really the problem is it's like they have tapped into this longing for meaning and purpose, but the option that they're giving in atavism is not always entirely contrary to Christianity, just like everything in self-care isn't entirely contrary to Christianity, but aspects of it really are. Well, in a sense, atavism is self-care or even Christianity is self-care. It's go to church and you're going to get these things that like help you self-actualize. And here's where I think the kind of missing link is, and maybe I'm betraying some of my like ideological commitments or that I mean to here, but is it true or not? I mean, what we've been talking about in this wonderful conversation, so much of it is about certain kinds of relativism and certain kinds of choice, not just on the level of individual action or individual desire, but a sense that like reality is what you make it and truth is what you make it. And, you know, what is truth but something that serves me in my self-expression? Which is exactly, I think, how even the kind of version of go back to church because it's going to teach you to be like a good family man risks doing. And I think at the end of the day, did Jesus come back from the dead or not? And I think that I am inclined, and I say this as a resurrection-affirming, believing Christian, that like, if it's not true, hey, you know what? Maybe this relativism stuff isn't so bad. Like, <laughs> if we do not have external truth claims about the way the world is, about what the role of God who made the world might be, what that means about what we owe to one another. Yeah, maybe we all are lobsters. Fine. I'm obviously being a bit flippant here and I don't want to be too flippant, but I think that there's an odd discomfort, including in the kind of like go to church to find a like hot trad wife and like become masculine language is a sense of like, what is actually true? What is real? Not it's just true for you or true for how it's going to like help you live your life, which is not to say, I mean, I think at its best, because I believe it is true, I also think that living one's life in a Christian way is good and has certain fruits of goodness in it. I think certainly my relationships, my friendships post-conversion have been richer and deeper for my faith. But I think that like, if you're just saying, well, go to church and you're going to get this great stuff. And like being a Christian means your life's going to be great. Like that's bad theology. You might get martyred. That happens to saints sometimes. <laughs> There's not a direct path from Christianity to health and wealth or, you know, a really, really hot wife or anything else for that matter. I think that it is interesting to me that a version of Christianity that just focuses on what can this narrative do for you? What can church attendance do for you? How can this help you in your expressive individualist journey moves away from the fact that like traditionally and at its best now as well, Christianity is making claims about like the truth of the world that change how you see things. And rather than simply providing a story that can be looked at alongside the atavist narrative or the liberal narrative or any other narrative of how life ought to be. You're making me think of something that my friend Ian Harbour said is doing a lot of work on deconstruction. And he made the point that you're going to be hard pressed to find churches that talk about the dark night of the soul. 
You're going to be hard-pressed to find churches that are willing to talk about part of your spiritual journey being suffering. And that suffering is not just for character formation. It's part of how God is at work inside of your life. And I think part of it's because churches have kind of, like you said, come alongside the self-expressive journey. And if it makes you unhappy, if it causes suffering, if it causes psychological difficulty or anxiety, then it must be bad. Whereas we actually have this robust theology that says, no, there is such a thing as the dark night of the soul. There are times where God might seem distant and you will walk through a valley of the shadow of death. And this is part of the norm of the Christian life. And his point with deconstruction is, you know, one reason why he thinks a lot of people deconstruct is because they didn't get that into their theology. And so the minute the church stopped helping them on their self-actualization journey, they said, okay, well, it's not helping anymore. I don't need it. I'm going to move on. I'm going to move past this thing. And I think it's really insightful. And it's what you're drawing out as well, is that if we get a bunch of Jordan Peterson acolytes inside the church because we're going to make them better manly men or family men or whatever else they think they're going to get out of it, we've only just come alongside a self-actualization journey. We haven't actually trained them in what it means to be a follower of Jesus who had this weird habit of talking about like taking up crosses, you know? Like, that just doesn't fit in <laughs> to the story. And so that's a really helpful point. I'm so grateful for you taking so much time to talk with me. And I just want to give you a chance. Can you just tell our listeners where they can find you, follow you, engage with what you're doing? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at NotoriousTIB. If you go to TaraIsabellaBurden.com, you can find out all about my work and my most recent novel, The World Cannot Give, Strange Rights, and also my upcoming book to be published in June uh, by Public Affairs, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, out late June 2023. Please do pre-order it. <laughs> it would make my publisher very happy. Thank you. I will definitely be pre-ordering that book. I think everybody else should be. Strange Rights was fantastic. I'm looking forward already to reading that book, which will be coming out just, uh, I think, a few months after this releases. So please do check out what Tara's doing. Thank you so much for being on the show and having this fabulous conversation. Thank you for your time and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.